Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all of our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. Today's episode features our regular book club meeting discussion of Steven Pinker's wonderful book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. In Enlightenment Now, psychologist Steven Pinker dispels the thought that the world is only getting worse and argues that things are actually getting better by every measure. Pinker provides statistics on such factors as health, wealth, equality, human rights, happiness, peace, and freedom to show that all of these things have improved over time all around the world. And he says the driving forces of this progress are reason, science, and humanism, values that are derived from the European Enlightenment. This was an excellent discussion led by book club member Kevin Nelson. We hope you find it as fascinating as we did. This book club meeting was originally recorded on Sunday, March 12th, 2023. Welcome everybody to another edition of The Good Book Club. Um, We are very excited today about the book that we're reading and what we're going to be covering. So if we can go to our next slide, um, I have not asked anyone to read our mission statement. (laughs) I have to say it's daylight savings or the opposite of daylight savings. Whatever it is, the time is different. So we're all a little groggy. So I'm going to go ahead and read our mission statement this morning. We always start out each meeting with this just so that we can remember um, our purpose of our book club. Uh, The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experiences relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. So I love that statement. I say it every time, but I I do love it. So we want to go through a couple things that were on the radar last month, things that we did. A few of our book club members were able to attend an amazing panel called Unveiling Dr. Clandestine. Um, We got to meet and talk to the amazing Sandra Tanner. Um, This (laughs) is kind of too complicated to go into probably right here, but it's a very interesting chapter in early post-Mormon history. Um, You might recognize that red book there that the Tanners put out in the 60s. It was featured in Under the Banner of Heaven. It was that book that was on the seat of the car when Detective Pyrie had kind of uh, had his faith crisis meltdown. So back in the 60s, when that book came out, a church historian wrote a little and published a little pamphlet. You can see that there. That's an actual copy of one of them um, refuting this book. And then the Tanners, of course, wrote something refuting him. So it's a very interesting cloak and dagger kind of scenario on Mormon Stories podcast. Just last week, they did a whole episode on that. So if you want to look that up, it's a super fascinating um, conversation. And also more information can be found in the book Lighthouse, which is the biography of Sandra Tanner. We've talked about that before at book club. I would highly recommend everybody reading that too. So kind of an interesting situation if you guys want to dive in. Uh, We also last month had the amazing Dr. Randy Bell on to talk about his book, Post Traumatic Thriving. That virtual meeting can be found under the featured tab, the video library on our book club page. And it can also be found just if you go to YouTube, 
and you search the Good Book Club, all of our meetings are there. So you can look that up if you had missed that because it was really, really awesome and another great book to read. Put it on your list if you haven't had a chance. So let's talk about books that are, or sorry, events that are coming up for the book club. There's always something. So I want to draw everybody's attention to Thrive Unite 2023. This is a Thrive meeting that is held everywhere in the world. And it's on the same day, Saturday, March 18th. So no matter where you are, you can go to thrivebeyondreligion.com and you can try to find a Thrive meeting um, that is near you. If you happen to be in Utah, I know there's one in Ogden. The one in North Utah County is the one I'm going to be going to. It's in Lehigh. And they actually asked me to emcee it for some reason. And we're having the amazing um, Dr. Uh, Hassan on to talk about cult mind control. So if you're interested in participating in you know the universal thrive day look it up on that website and see if you can find one near you that you can go to it's going to be really awesome Let's see, as far as what the book club is doing itself, we are finally having another brew and chew. This is when we get together in person in Utah because we do seem to have a lot more members now in Utah than we had in the past. So we are going to be going to a Utah pagan market, which will be really fun. It's in Sandy and there's a coffee shop and we're just going to kind of gather and pick up some pagan paraphernalia if you need any, <laughs> maybe a Viking Stein or something. <laughs> and we're going to talk and chat and that'll be on Sunday, March 26th at 11. 11 a.m. Mountain Time. So if you can join us for that, please do that. And then that very same night, we have a lot going on that day. Um, a lot of the book club members, we've gotten tickets to this um, Fresh King Benjamin. He's a raised in, in polygamy and he does comedy about it, probably to work through the trauma. <laughs> anyway, this is going to be at Jordan Landing Wise Guys Comedy Club. And you can go to wiseguyscomedy.com and get your tickets for that. And we're all just going to kind of meet up and, and laugh together. So I think that'll be really fun. All again on Sunday, March 26th. So as far as what's coming up virtually for the book club, um, the amazing Dr. John Knight Lundwall is going to be talking to us about cultural astronomy. He is, I can't even really go into what this all means. He is absolutely fascinating. And we'll be putting some more information out via email and on Facebook. But this is going to be a do not want to miss presentation of his work on just basically how the early Fremont Indians created um, these petroglyphs and what they have to do with the solar system and light. And it's going to be incredible. And this will be on Tuesday, April 11th at 7 p.m. It's just one of our bonus events. So no book associated with that one. And then... <laughs> This is coming up on Tuesday, May 2nd. Um, I don't know if you've looked at the news lately, but this amazing book, I have it already, called From Mormon to Mermaid, <laughs> was written by this just lovely, lovely woman named Lorelai Kay, who I've kind of gotten to know a little bit um, as I'm talking to her about that. It has received some awards in the last month. And so it's kind of back on the radar, even though it was written a few years ago. Um, it's from Mormaid, Mormaid. Okay, I just made up a new word, Mormaid. <laughs> I told you it was early from Mormon to Mermaid, one woman's voyage from oppression to freedom. And you guys can pick up this book. It's not necessary to read the book to attend the event, but it's a quick read. And she's just an, she's an excellent author. It's a really wonderful read. And she's going to come and talk to us about her book. And this will be in May. So plenty of time to add that for bonus reading if you guys would like to. So. Perfect. Other reading opportunities. As a lot of you know, I also help uh, John DeLynn with his Mormon Stories book club, and we are reading Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational with the 
incredible Michael Shermer, and he is going to be joining us on the program. So more extra reading. If you guys want to grab that, that's coming up at the end of April and we'll be talking with Michael. So I highly recommend this book too. Um, let's very quickly go over other media in the radar really fast. Um, um, we also have the Good Media Club. This is where we kind of curate information about um, other things, uh, film, podcasts, movies, things that have to do with Mormonism, not book related, but media related. And you can find that on Facebook. If you want to jump over there, we kind of talk about that. Um, we also have the Good Book Club podcast. You can just search that on any major podcast format. And that's where we have our book club meetings in podcast form. And uh, it's pretty popular. People like to listen. We also have Mormonish podcast. If you guys want to tune into that, we interview, well, a lot of you guys, so because <laughs> you guys are the most interesting people we know. So it's fun to get to know everybody through the podcast. And there are some date changes for regular book club coming up because we have Easter during the regular book club time in April. So we have moved that to the 16th. So put that on your calendar on May. Uh, in May, regular book club falls on Mother's Day. And that would just be too much to ask, right? To pull everybody away on Mother's Day. So we are moving that date to the 21st. These are all on Sunday and just date changes due to trying to avoid those holidays. So we'll put more information out about that later. Um, very quickly, our next book, which we are going to talk about at the end with a more uh, comprehensive review, is Recovering Agency by Luna Lindsay. And she, I believe, is going to be able to zoom in with us. I am talking to uh, Luna and um, Luna is going to be able to join us. So we'll have more information about that. So I think that finally ends the announcements. Oh my gosh, they get longer every time. We are now going to start talking about our book and our presenter today is the amazing Kevin. So Kevin, take it away. All right. Good morning. Um, yeah, this is a, it's an exciting book. It's a very long one, so we'll, we'll try to get through it. Um, it's Alignment Now by Steven Pinker. Um, you know, he, he says in his book, there can be no question of which was the greatest era for culture. The answer has to be today until it is superseded by tomorrow. Um, and there's a picture of him. He looks just like uh, someone you would picture from the Enlightenment era. So um, this is a... Oh. I can't go to the next slide. Oh, there we go. Um, okay, so... This kind of sums up his book. Um, starts out with a quote. He says, my country is led by people with a dark vision of the current moment, mothers and children trapped in poverty, an education system which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge and the crime and the gains that have stolen too many lives. We are in an outright war that is expanding and metastasizing. The blame for this nightmare may be placed on the global power structure that has eroded the underlying spiritual and moral foundations of Christianity. In this audiobook, I will show you that this bleak assessment of the world is wrong, and not just a little wrong, but wrong, wrong. Flatter throng couldn't be more wrong. So that that's a pretty bold statement that uh, you know, flatter throng that uh, we do live in a in a great time. Um, there's a quote here, uh, also that he gives at the beginning of the book um, by uh, Barack Obama. It says, "If you had to choose a moment in history to be born, and you didn't know which, you did not know ahead of time who you would be, who you would be." You didn't know if you would be born into a wealthy or poor family, what country you'd be born in, whether you were going to be a man or a woman. If you had to be choose blindly what moment you'd be to be born, you'd choose now. Uh, so that's that's really cool. Um, you know, as you, as you think about that, um, you know, you just think of the things that we have today back, you know, 
hundred years ago, they were praying for moisture so that they could farm. And now we pray for that. So we can go skiing. Right. So, um, it's just a great time to, to, to live. Okay. So as for the organization of, uh, his book, he, he divides the book into three parts. Uh, part one kind of gives some introductory concepts. Um, part two has a lot of data, a lot of charts. Um, he goes through and he describes, um, with data why, today is the best time to live, you know, that, that opening statement. Um, he does a really great job at, at presenting um, a, a very, um, a good case for this. And then in part three, he um, talks about reason, science, and humanism, um, kind of gives um, a really good summary of, of, you know, why things are so good and, um, you know, where we should, you know, how we should proceed. Um, so we'll we'll go through this. I'm going to talk in five different different sections. At the end of each section, you know that's what the colors are there for. It's about four or five, six chapters per section, um, and we'll open up for questions, and, and you can you know make comments, comments or questions. Um, it is kind of a long book, so on some of those chapters, I might I might kind of go quickly over over a few of them. Um, I do have a chapter, a slide per chapter. So um, chapter one is dare to understand. Uh, he talks about reason, science, humanism, and progress. And, and each of these, um, we will, you know, toward the end, we'll talk about reason, science, and humanism. And part two through the middle, we'll be talking about progress that we've been making. Uh, reason um, is, you know, we want to find objective standards. And that doesn't mean that we are perfectly rational agents, um, but we try to be. Uh, it means that we don't fall back on, on generators of delusion, which are faith, dogma, revelation, authority, charisma, mysticism, divination, visions, gut feelings, and sacred texts. So we want to get away from that um, that we have relied on for, for so long. Uh, science is a paradigm for achieving reliable knowledge. Um, and humanism, he, he is a very, um, very big proponent for humanism. Um, it's basically a secular foundation for morality. Uh, you know, and, and, and one thing that it does is it privileges the well-being of individuals above the glory of the tribe, race, nation, and religion. Uh, that really resonates with me. Um, I, I think that resonates with a lot of people, um, especially coming, you know, from a religion that that does place so much emphasis on, um, you know, the glory of the, the religion. Um, what motivated humanism was, was the hauntings of memories of centuries of religious carnage, like the Crusades, Inquisition, witch hunts. Um, a lot of stuff like that. And humanism condemns secular cruelties such as slavery, despotism, execution for frivolous offenses, sadistic punishments, um, and then and, and that. Uh, progress. So he, he talks about, and we'll go, we'll go through the progress, um, but he, his claim is that if it's unguided by humanism, it's not progress. Sometimes it can be hard to tell if we're making progress or not. Um, Knowing what direction we should travel is, is can be difficult, and so his his case is that humanism uh, will propel us in the right direction. Uh, you know, and, and he talks about as far as progress goes, a farmer doesn't um, conjure stuff up um, in isolation, or a craftsman um, they don't they don't make stuff out of isolation. But what what we do is we we depend on a network of specialists. Um, each of us learn how to make something as efficiently as possible, and then we combine the fruits of our labors and 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 we're able to make great products. And if you just think of like a simple item, like a, a pot that you cook with, just the amount of effort that that would take for one person to make, they would have to provide their own travel to somewhere to mine materials. They would have to then 
um, have tools to heat that up, they, which they have made. And then, um, you know, hard, be able to, to, they'd have to make a screw in order to combine the handle to the pot. And so we live in a time where we're making a lot of progress and, and it's not just one person that's doing this, but, um, you know, as, as humans, we're all working on this together. Okay, um, chapter two um, is entropy, evolution, and information. Uh, so he presents these three key ideas, and, and I think his purpose for presenting these is just so that we can grab, have a grasp of, of you know, where we came from, why, why the universe is the way it is. Um, so he talks about entropy. Um, what entropy is is a measure of disorderliness. Um, if you've taken thermodynamics, I have not, but the second law is that entropy in a closed system always increases. Um, if you have kids, you know this very well, you organize your playroom and within hours, you know, it goes from a state of orderliness into disorder and I'm, it never goes the other way on its own. Um, it always takes energy to be put into it to reorder it. Um, this is just kind of a, a natural condition of our universe um, is that, that things things go from order to disorder. Um, the, the example that he puts in his book is that sandcastles don't create themselves. If you build a sandcastle and you come back the next day, there's a good chance that it's going to be just completely uh, mixed in with the rest of the sand and be completely um, disordered. Um, so uh, now, now one thing, I think he mentions it later in the book, but, um, you know, and I remember reading um, another book where uh, it talked about entropy and, and it almost makes you think, oh, this is a great case for theism. You know, God must have created everything and now we're just seeing everything unfold and it's it's uh, becoming more disordered. Um, but the, the key here is that it's in a closed system. It it Things become more disordered. Um, so evolution um, is another part that he talks in this chapter. Um, and evolution is a huge topic and, and he just he just touches it. Um, if you want to learn about evolution, there's there's better books for it. Um, but it, it really kind of defeats entropy through a self-replicating process. Um, you know, we we uh, evolve over over millions of years. We have evolved. Um, genetic replication has, you know, propagated us from generation to the next, um, sometimes causing errors. And when those errors happen, um, you know, usually they're not advantageous, but sometimes they are. And when they are, then that um, points to us being more successful at producing offspring and those those good mutations will be the ones that that um, survive the longest. Um, you know, and he talks about how we are adapted from the past, um, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that we're necessarily adapted for the future. So, you know, where we are in the universe is is um, you know product of of evolution in the past. So, here we are in this in this place, and we're going to be going forward, having adapted well to the past. Um, Information, he talks about information, um, talks about how it's stored in our genes and in our brains and how it connects us to the laws of nature. Um, you know, we are very complex beings. Um, we have higher order thinking, we have goals and sub goals. And, you know, our progress over the centuries has allowed us, um, allowed us to, to become very intelligent, even though there is so much more that we, you know, there's a lot that we don't know. Um, he talks about how energy capture has en has enabled more thinking and less surviving. So as we've been able to um, capture more energy, uh, fighting against entropy, um, you know, we now live in a time where we can think. We're not just we're not just trying to survive from day to day. Um, 
And the other part of information that he talks about is that ideas are not just abstracted in the mind of a single thinker, but we can pool our ideas across a community of thinkers. Um, so here we are in a book club discussing, um, you know, a book that we've read and we're able to combine all of our ideas and, and come up with something better than any one of us could um, on our own. Okay, um, chapter three talks about counter-enlightenment. Counter-enlightenment, enlightenment. The enlightenment ideals are rooted in reason and human nature so that any reasonable human can engage with them. Uh, he talks about how, you know, as soon as the enlightenment was, you know, came about, it was followed by a counter-enlightenment. No sooner did people step into the light that they decided the darkness wasn't so bad after all. Uh, we can kind of see that uh, a lot of times that's in our nature to do that. Um, sometimes ignorance is bliss. Uh, so Pinker talks about religious faith. He says that um, religious faith is to believe uh, without good reason, which isn't too far from what I would have called faith several years ago, which would be to believe in something unseen that I don't know. Um, you know, and, and, and Steven Pinker says that, that you know, his, his case is that that goes against um, enlightenment, that we, we don't want to do that. We want to believe for good reason. Um, so religious faith has elevated some moral good above humans, enforcing rituals and taboos, and it values souls above lives. Um, I have certainly seen that. Um, that was kind of one of the things that hit me really hard upon leaving religion was, was that, um, that I valued souls above lives, um, including my own. Uh, another counter enlightenment is that people are expendable cells of a superorganism, that the glory is in the well-being of the entity rather than people that make it up. Um, kind of a, a motto of nationalism is, you know, sweet is sweet it is to die for your country. Um, so that isn't a counter enlightenment. Uh, I know that, oh man, watching Saving Private Ryan, that would that just hit me so hard. Just seeing seeing that, um, just the way that people have been treated in the past and, and today, but um, you know, as, as we're getting better, um, it's it's less, but just that people can be expendable. Um, very counter-enlightenment. Um, his, his last one that he mentioned was left and right-wing ideologies have become secular religions. Um, they've done this by having communities of correct beliefs, righteousness, and demonizing the other side. Okay, one more chapter and then we'll go into comments. Um, so he goes in, going into to part two um, on progress, his first chapter is progressophobia. Um, the fear of progress. So he talks about Pollyanna to Eeyore. Um, kind of our nature is that we think we're less likely than average to become victims of divorce, layoff, accident, illness, or crime. However, we think that society will become worse over time and that our country is headed in the wrong direction. I think most people would, would agree with, with um, that's how they feel. Um, you know, one reason for this is that news is about things that do happen, not things that don't happen. So we always see those bad headlines but we never see the good headlines, or, or at least we see them a lot less. Um, so we want to we want to counter this, and and he he uh, talks about how to how to soundly praise the state of the world. He says what we need to do is look at the data. We need to count um, this, this with respect to the number of people alive, not in absolute numbers. Uh, you know, we need to look at how many people are sick, oppressed, starving, illiterate, and unhappy, um, based on how many people are there. Um, we also need to be concerned with are those numbers going up or are those numbers going down. Um, so, and, and, and we'll talk a lot about it in, in part two, um, crimes, war, hunger, that has all been trending down. Um, and, and 
you know, as, as we go through these, these numbers, um, it's not linear, it's not monotonically trending down, but if we look at it on a long time scale, then, then we can see the trends um, for the most part are going down. Um, he also points out that just because Y is less than X does not mean that Y equals zero. So, um, you know, it, it, we still have problems. Um, he's not gonna be making a claim that we don't have any problems today. Um, and another thing is, if, if anyone is a victim of any, any of these, uh, you know, when you're a victim of, of any of these things, you're not going to see that, that it's not, um, it, it's hard to see. Um, you're, you're going to see uh, everything all over. Um, also, just because things are trending down doesn't mean we, we can sit back and let them prob let the problems clean themselves up. And it doesn't mean that the future will also trend downward. So um, that's an important thing to keep, keep in mind. Um, also, he, he points out that bad is stronger than good. Uh, if, you, if you take it, your, your day today and you say, what good things could happen to me versus what bad things could happen, you're gonna you're gonna find that the the bad things are bottomless, um, whereas the good things you're you're somewhat limited. So um, that's kind of setting the stage for going in and talking about the data. Um, let's open it up for um, if anyone has any comments on on those first four chapters. Let's see, sorry, I gotta get this bar back up. All right, uh, yeah, Jackie. Just really quickly, um, <clears throat> I have a, a father who is 90 years old who was in the Korean War and my father-in-law was in the Vietnam War. <clears throat> and, you know, they were raised on this nationalism and I mean, they went to war and, and fought, you know. I mean, my father was lucky, he was like a clerk and my father-in-law was a little behind the back lines, but. You know, it's so hard because you read a book like this and you see how clearly they were indoctrinated and all of us were. And, you know, there's something about freedom. But at the same time, you have to respect so much that they went and, you know, did this and went to war. And um, I'm just thankful now for the statement when we can say, I'm so thankful for your service. And um, I think that's what's hard. We're in such paradigm shift now. And um, once you see, you can't unsee. And finding the respect and the dialogue is, um, I think, our biggest uh, challenge and also our, our greatest hope. Yes, thank you. I, yeah, exactly. Landon. Yeah, I just, I was, I really enjoyed the book in that it was so positive and that it gave us hope for the future. And, you know, because, it, it seems like uh, you always hear it's the last days, the, the the end of the earth's coming, everything's falling apart. And when you read this, you realize, no, it's really, it's really not. It's really pretty good. Although I do think we kind of have been swept into a swell of, well, that can't happen to us. It's almost like as, as Americans, it's gotten so good that you believe, oh, there can't be an economic crash that's going to, you know, like the depression again, or, oh, well, my, my kids aren't ever going to have to go to war and die. I think sometimes we get settled into this, oh, this is never going to happen to me because it hasn't happened for so many years. So I think his point's well taken in that sense. But uh, I was reading the book, actually, when I was, uh, uh, I read a lot of it on the airplane. I, I went to Korea this uh, this month. And coming back, I was sitting in the plane and, you know, your, your neck hurts and you're going, oh, I'm sitting up trying to sleep. How horrible is this? 
And, and then you realize that, you know, as I read the book, I'm like, what am I complaining about? In 13 hours, I'm going to be halfway around the world. They're feeding me dinner. They're bringing me drinks. I'm watching videos, reading my book on a thing. How good do I have it compared to everybody before me? So I really thought the book brought out the positive side, and I, I really enjoyed that part of the book. Yes. You got to sing Pioneer Children sing as they walked and walked and walked when you're on that airplane. Uh, thank you. Uh, Bruce. Yeah. As you were talking about things, it just popped into my head. Um, Holland's statement on where will you go if you leave the church? You know, like the the world outside the bubble of Mormonism is is full of peril and you know where will you go without us it just I'm going like there's a lot of good places to go and that that's just the thought that i had yes thank you anyone else or should we move on all right we will move on okay so now we're starting to get into um, the data, there's, oh man, there's like 17 chapters of this. So, <laughs> um, all right. So his first one is life. Um, you know, our global average life expectancy is 71 years, 71.4 years um, in 2015. Um, and, and he points out that is dragged down by infant mortality, uh, which we have, we have to consider. Um, you know, if you, have, if you have eight people, one of them died in a car accident when they were five, um, in order to obtain 70, 70 years, that means that the other, the other um, 79 people had to live till they were about 80 um, in order for that to average out. So um, 71, 71 and a half years is, is average, but uh, again, that's dragged down. Contrast that with earlier people, hunter-gatherers, 32.5 years. The Bronze Age, also the low 30s. So... Um, yeah, I don't think many of us would be here, if any. <laughs> um, so uh, life expectancies have picked up in the 20th century, and it shows no signs of slowing down. Um, something that, that is really cool um, is that every year that, that we live, you're, you know, through, through the, sorry, through the 20th century, every year that someone lived, their life expectancy only went down by seven months. Um, so, or because life expectancy went up, the number of years they had left um, only decreased by seven months. Um, I thought that was very cool. Um, if, we, if we look at the charts, um, the one on the left shows life expectancy. Um, this is for the entire world um, and then also several regions. Um, it is trending upwards. There is a dip kind of reminding us that, that it's a, uh, not an escalator it's not always going up um but aids in africa caused that dip there um, on the chart on the left um but again it picked up and started continuing upward again um to the point where you know life expectancy is very high um throughout the world um the chart on the right kind of showed what i was talking about with the seven months for every every year that we live um Kind of a chart similar to what an actuary would, would look at. Um, but just over the years, it just shows that the life expectancy went up for all, you know, if, for all age ranges. Um, very, 
Very cool chart. Um, okay. Child mortality is another um, thing that it, it has plummeted 100 fold. That is, that is like when you think about it and, and I can't remember what he's, Oh, it, it's in the chart. Uh, since, you know, about like mid 1700s um, that chart in the middle is the child mortality. So you can just see for the data that we have, just how that has dropped down to almost nothing. Um, 30% of babies uh, or children didn't die before age five. That That is, that's unthinkable now. It's just, it is unthinkable. Um, and one thing that he pointed out is it has a snowball effect because child mortality was so high. Um, people had a lot of children kind of as an insurance policy. Um, you don't have to have that anymore. Uh, it's, you know, you can expect, you, you hope that, um, you know, there, there's with fewer deaths that um, that we will survive longer and, and, and won't need, um, you know, won't need as many children. Right. So that's kind of a snowball effect there. Uh, mother death and childbirth was one percent until uh, until recently. And now it is point zero two percent. So, again, almost nothing. Um, and the progress in child mortality helps, but it doesn't fully account for the progress in life expectancy. Um, our number of healthy years is up dementia's down. And so not only are we living longer, but we're living um, higher quality lives. Okay, um, chapter six is on health. Um, the deadly diseases of the past, yellow fever, cholera, polio, smallpox, AIDS, and measles. Um, we don't, we don't get these, like these are not, we don't die of these anymore. Um, that's kind of a miracle. Um, so the solutions to this, like, I was just as he as he pointed these out, it was it was, it was bizarre to me. Boiling vaccines, hand washing, sterilization, and not drinking downstream. That's kind of the big thing that that has improved our health. It's things that are obvious to us today, um, yet it hasn't always been so obvious. Um, so it's very very cool that uh, you know health has been. I mean, we we've eradicated diseases. Um, he listed. There's this huge list of you know, advances in science and health and medicine, um, he claims have saved 5 billion lives. Um, discovery of blood groups, blood groups was 1 billion lives. Chlorination of water, 177 million. Smallpox eradications, um, 131 million. And, and the list just continues on and on um, to 5 billion lives that have been saved by, um, by health, uh, science advances in health. Um, Chapter seven, he talks about sustenance. Um, something we don't appreciate today is that famine has plagued us throughout our history. Um, we really are the first society that that has the problem of too many calories. And that is a good problem to have and indicates that, our, our, that the developed world is improving. Um, the chart on the top just kind of shows that. Um, it starts in the 1700s, um, just how many calories each person got per day. Um, and that number is increasing um, for all the countries that he's listed and, and worldwide. Um, that's on a pretty good um, increase uh, kind of way that, that just shows that, that we are uh, fighting, fighting hunger. Um, stunting due to undernourishment is decreasing. Um, it's 13% compared to 35. Uh, again, not zero, but it's in the right direction. Um, he talked about irrigation and genetic selection. 
Um, those were improvements to help us with, um, you know, fighting famine. Um, those were good, but they weren't enough. Um, some of the advances recently that have helped have been crop rotation, fossil fuels, storage, nitrogen and uh, nitrogen fertilizers. Those have helped increase the food per acre. Um, now, his, his claim is that it's it's attributed to 2.7 billion lives saved from starvation. Um, that is that is a large number. Um, less than a third of the land is needed than before we had uh, fertilizers and 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 uh, these things, and that's leading to forests bouncing back. So um, here we are. We have we have some data to, to uh, you know that's showing that things are getting better. Um, a number he put up is that 70 million people died of famine in the 20th century. 80% of these were due to communist regimes, forced collectivization, punitive confiscation, and totalitarian central planning. Uh, the chart on the bottom shows that. It's kind of a low-resolution chart, um, but it just shows um, how many famine deaths per 100,000 people per decade. Uh, so you can see that, that um, it's quite high and then has, has moved down um, to almost nothing in the last few decades. Okay, chapter eight is on wealth. Um, he gave a, a you know a history of the sustained prosperity and the and gross world product. Um, claimed that there was almost no gain to GWP um, up to one thousand AD. Took five hundred years to double that, and then in the nineteenth century it exploded. Uh, since eighteen twenty, it tripled in nineteen hundred tripled again in 1950, tripled again in 1975, and then tripled again in 2003. So um, just what we've been able to produce has, has dramatically increased. Um, he also pointed out, which is very fascinating, that, that the GWP grossly underestimates the expansion of our, of our prosperity. Um, an example of this is, is how much would a cancer treatment cost in 1800? And the, the, the answer to that is, that, well, it didn't exist. You couldn't have had that. You could have paid all the money in the world and it couldn't have bought that. Um, refrigeration is another simple example that we all, um, you know, have in our homes. Well, how much would that have costed in 1800? Again, all the money in the world could not have bought that. So um, even though these numbers say that, yes, we've exploded, it doesn't, it doesn't do it justice. Um, so as I was doing these slides, I, I was reminded of a, a a podcast uh, that Planet Money did, and then Stephen Pinker later mentioned it in the book, um, the same study. Um, but it was an episode on how much light one day of labor would buy. Um, so it's a simple, simple study. In ancient Babylon, it, one day of labor would buy you 10 minutes of light. In 1850, not too long ago, um, they had kerosene and that got you five hours of light. And then in 1990, with light bulbs, it gives you 2,000, sorry, 20,000 hours of light. So huge advance that we don't even think about day to day. Um, and, and, and again, with that earlier statement about it, it grossly underestimates it, we're talking about a candle versus a light switch. And, and, and sometimes not even light switch. You walk into a room and it lights up for you. So um, just the advances in what we have and, and the way that we live are just huge. Um, things that have enabled this have been open economies with laws to protect, anonymous transactions, 
and then a change in values. Uh, supposedly, commerce wasn't viewed as um, a reputable industry. I don't know. They they do, they were viewed as lowly people, people doing commerce. But a change in values helped that. Um, let's see. We we are eradicating poverty. It's not nothing, but we are eradicating it, and the world is becoming middle class. Um, these charts, both of these charts are on poverty. Um, you've got in 1820, 90% uh, of the world was living in extreme poverty. That has gone down today. We're um, at about 10% that live in extreme poverty. So um, while we still can make improvements, that is, that is a huge, that is, that is huge. Um, the chart on the bottom, I think paints the picture a little bit better because um, it shows, it, it kind of shows the, it's not just a percentage, it actually shows you the, the, the numbers. Um, what you have is, is you can see the number of people not living in extreme poverty and then the number of people that are living in extreme poverty. Um, you can see that, that number um, since the 70s has been steadily decreasing quite a bit. Um, and, and the number of people not living in poverty is, is just going up um, quite linearly. So uh, that's, a, that's a, yeah, very cool. Um, he points out that solving this problem will require more than just extrapolating with a ruler, that we need to move the goalpost and attack poverty, just not extreme poverty. Um, and then he also points out that some of the enablers of this have been a decline in corrupt communist regimes, government focus on education and the well-being of citizens, industrialization, trade, and technology. Um, chapter nine is on equality. So, you know, we just saw that um, we are getting wealthier, but the question is, is this all going to the rich? The left likes to blame Wall Street and the right likes to blame immigration, foreign trade. Um, what we do have is a measure, there's an economic inequality measure called the Gini index. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but there's a chart on it. Zero means that everyone is equal. One means that somebody owns everything. Um, so it's all owned by one person. So on this chart, you can see that um, in 1820, um, that number was pretty low, meaning that everyone was pretty equal in what they, in, in as far as um, the distribution of, of wealth across everybody. Um, the Gini index raised quite steadily until about the 50s, 60s, somewhere in there. And tapered off and is, is um, looks like it's on a downtrend um, on, on, a, on a short time scale, on a, on a very recent time scale. Um, so that's, that's kind of where the inequality sits as far as the data shows. Um, Pinker does point out that um, inequality does not, well, it, people feel that inequality means mo modernity has failed to improve the human condition. But he points out some some things here. He says, recognize that it's not a fundamental well-being. Um, uh, also, don't wish that Boris's goat will die. There's a Russian fable about this uh, poor farmer who lives by another farmer who has more goats than him. He comes across a, a magic lamp, rubs it, and he wishes that Boris's goat would die so that they can be more equal. Um, so we don't want to don't want to play that game. Um, wealth is not as uh, he points out that wealth is not a zero-sum game. And that people move to higher incomes over their career. Um, so even though there may be inequality, sometimes um, we can forget that over a career, um, people will be, will earn more um, as they advance in their career. Uh, he also 
points out that we shouldn't conflate inequality with unfairness. Um, and then the last part of this chapter uh, is he talks about, um, he, he brings up a, a good point um, that the redistribution of wealth through social spending is com co is compatible with capitalism. And that's, uh, you know, th this chart on the bottom, um, these OECD countries are, there's 35, there's 35 um, countries, democratic states with market economies. They, um, they all have social spending programs and that we can see that these are increasing um, over, you know, as time goes on, that those have, the, the trend is that those have been increasing. Uh, he just points out this is compatible with capitalism. Okay, uh, do we have any comments or questions on, on those chapters? Uh, yeah, Bruce. Yeah, I just got, you know, as things are getting better, remember that in in the Mormon culture, Joseph Smith came with the revelation of the word of wisdom, no alcohol, no coffee or tea. At that time, doctors were, you know, working on cadavers and then delivering babies or going into surgery without washing their hands. It wasn't until the late 1800s that the concept of washing your hands before surgery or before delivering a baby or anything, <clears throat> it just hits me that it would have been real nice if God would have thought to tell Joseph Smith, you know, everybody should wash your hands as being a more helpful word of wisdom to improve everyone's life. That was just my thought. Yes, that would have been convenient. <laughs> uh, thank you, Jackie. Um, <clears throat> for me, I really like all this data because um, <clears throat> it really grounds you in what really is going on. And I was listening to a podcast by Rich Roll a year or two back, and they were talking about the problem with today and the right hating the left and all these extremes. And he says, we have an intersection on both sides of holier than thou with ignorance. And that line has just always stayed with me. And I love that he is pushing that capitalism really is a good thing. And it's the only system that's worked so far. It doesn't mean it doesn't have its flaws. And but, you know, he points out what's working and he proves it with data. And I think it really grounds us and takes us out of this uh, fear mongering, you know, righteous indignation uh, all this stuff that that is emotional and um, puts us in a space of, of real common sense and able to see the big picture view. So I'm really, really appreciate this parts that we're in with the book. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. And, it, and it, it's really good. Like the data that he shows is it, it's really helpful. Um, and I think he does a good job at pointing out both like like both sides of the aisle. He does a, He does a great job at. Um, you know, just presenting it as it is, I think. All right, um, Landon. Yeah, I, I just thought uh, these numbers were incredible. When you look at, you, you know, what previous, the previous 20,000, 50,000, 70,000 years of human existence, and to see, you know, today, most of those numbers really came down in the last, uh, in our lifetime. You know, we've really seen the change happen in our lifetime. 
And it was, it was, as I looked at those graphs, I was just going, oh my gosh, this is, this is just incredible. Why do people though think that the world's falling apart? And I think as I thought about it, I thought, you know, worldwide, these things are changing huge. Africa, South America, they're all trending so much, which has really made the average go up. But I think people look at their own life and, and they look local to things. And so I think that's why we see so many of these, you know, uh, I can't drive through Salt Lake and see the homeless people all over the place and go, what is going on? What is happening here? Even though I know the wealth worldwide is is going up and countries in Africa are coming out of poverty. Uh, it looks like in my neighborhood that things are going downhill because I'm seeing the, the, the homelessness. I'm seeing the inequality in pay. I'm seeing the, the, these things. And so I think in a wealthy country where we were already up high, we don't see the bigger changes or we see a, a, a tick down and it makes us it makes us think, oh, things are going going worse. And, and we look at it locally like that, where whereas globally it, it's changing. But it does make you think, you know, wow, what can I do locally to try to change things or, or make them better? Because uh, I'm I'm definitely seeing a downtrend when I when I drive through Salt Lake and see the homelessness and the poverty and and in in people's jobs i i clearly can see inequality happening you know where some people have everything and others are right now my kids cannot buy a house they they have children they're saving they both have jobs and they cannot buy a house and so those things impact your impact these numbers to you and, and the chart can say one thing but your own personal experience i think makes you see things one way or the other so that was just an observation that I that I made. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Rebe uh, Rebecca. Yeah, I liked what Bruce said. <laughs> I've always said I would believe in God if the first line in Genesis was "Thou shalt boil thy water." <laughs> I would have totally believed. Right? That was thousands of years ago. Um, so this whole book made me think of the concept of, and, and this may be simplistic as I'm thinking about it, but just the idea that religion tends to sometimes create a problem that only they have the answer for. And the problem here is that everything is horrible and the world is going to hell. And, and I don't think I ever, and again, I said, this is a simplistic way maybe to look at it, but I don't think I ever realized that attending church decade after decade, you sort of have that concept from the pulpit, you know, we're in the, the worst times. Um, it's horrible. Um, the only safety is here. And since having stepped away and still having family, friends that are still hearing this very subtly, it's subtle, you know, but it's there. We're in a war. We have to fight. We have to this, you know, I've, I've noticed a definite shift in just my attitude and their attitude um, in just talking about them. I tend to think more you know, along the lines of what, what the stats in the books are showing, you know, maybe things really are okay. And there's sort of more of a gloom and doom attitude a little bit on the other side, gloom and doom, and then attitude, but aren't we lucky that we're safe? You know, we're in this religion that's protecting us. So I don't know if anyone else has noticed that. And again, that's very simplistic, but just sort of an undercurrent of that idea that there's safety here, you've left. <laughs> oh, poor you. How horrible. How can you stand it? And I'm thinking, I actually feel happy. <laughs> I actually am looking at things in a much more positive way and seeing positive achievements and, and things that are mentioned in the book. So I don't know. It, I appreciate all the stats. Maybe now I have um, some statistics to arm myself to argue or maybe not argue, but just discuss with um, friends and relatives who keep trying to tell me 
we're in the very end, end days, end of times. The apocalypse is nigh. So that was just my thought. Yes, all those all those atheists, uh, such a problem, aren't they? <laughs> Thank you. Damn um, us. <laughs> right. Um, Bruce, did you have another comment? Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, and I've mentioned this before, the book club helps me figure out how the world actually works because we were given a narrative of, you know, the pre-existence, the mortal probation, the afterlife, what we have to do. And, you know, learning more, the Mormon narrative doesn't, doesn't seem to work. And so leaving the church, being part of the book club, being part of other things, I'm trying to figure out how the world works. And then I'm also trying to figure out, you know, what my place is in the world. And I really enjoyed listening to this book. And I just thought several, like a decade or more ago, I gave up um, cable TV because I just hate watching the news on cable TV. I re read the newspapers and, and a few things like on YouTube, but it's very negative. And um, I just find for my own mental health, if I pay less attention to the constant drumbeat of the negative stuff going on. And then, you know, when I think back on that, my previous comment of, you know, if you leave the church, where will you go? Well, the apocalyptic religions, us, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, you know, the world's coming to an end. Um, so you have to do what we say right now and give us your money. It's all a control thing. And I think we have a much better perspective from the viewpoint of what's written here in the book that things are getting better. As Landon pointed out, you know, there is a homelessness problem and we need to work locally with that. And those are things that we might be able to help with. So yeah, it just helps me, this book helped me have a better perspective on how the world works and what my place is in it and what where I need to help needs to be locally and how I vote and stuff like that. So those are just my thoughts. Cool, thank you. All right. Okay, so move on to um, environment. Um, so not all the trends uh, for the environment are positive, um, but he does he presents an alternative view to the radical view. Um, the environment deals with microscopic level, such as chemicals that harm us and other species, and the macroscopic level, such as pollutants to the planet. Um, he points out that some degree of pollution is inescapable, that when we use energy, it increases entropy elsewhere in the environment. Um, he talked a lot about, and I, I found this part really fascinating, uh, that when native people first set foot in an ecosystem, they typically hunted to extinction and buried large swaths of forest, or sorry, burned large swaths of forest. Um, they were not very good per capita to the, to the environment. Um, he also pointed out that farming is far from natural and causes even more problems. Um, and then he points out that industrialization has been good for humanity. Um, it's increased our lifespans, it's slashed poverty, and it's helped end slavery and many other things. And so as we talk about the environment, we need to offset, um, you know, we, we need to 
offset the the good against um or sorry the offsets to the environment need to be weighed against the benefit um of the good that, that things have caused uh he also points out that um it's hard to worry about the pollution when you're hungry so um it's kind of one of those problems kind of we mentioned earlier um once we can take care of our our survival now we can start to worry about things like the environment um he talks about um, there's been a lot of naive faith in stasis that has led to doomsday predictions that never happen. Uh, people have been afraid of a population bomb and they've been afraid of running out of resources. And while this could happen, it hasn't happened yet, even though it's been predicted to have happened long, long ago. Um, uh, another topic he talked about was dematerialization. Um, this is fascinating. When you think about a smartphone and you know, this is a technology and, you know, we might pollute while we're using this, but look at what it has reduced. It's reduced the amount of paper we use. It's um, It has a calculator in it, it has a camera, a notebook, maps, flashlights, telephone, an alarm clock, and, and the list goes on. And that's just one device that through our advances um, has, has helped the environment. Um, I, I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong on that, but, but, um, the point is that that one thing has reduced a lot of other stuff. Um, so with, with our advances in technology, um, he does have a chart that I found interesting. Um, the chart on the top shows um, the amount of oil that we shipped by sea in the gray line and the amount of spills, oil spills in the, in the sea in the dark line. What you can see is that in 1970, um, it appears that that's about when we, like that's when when oil shipped by sea started increasing. Um, there were lots of spills, and and those two lines are just kind of, um, you know, they 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 have an anti-trend in them. Um, we're spilling a lot less, even though we're shipping a lot more oil by sea. And so through our advances, we are bettering our processes. Um, and this is one industry, but it it um, just shows that that we do have better processes now than than when the technology started. Um, and, um, one more, um, oh, greenhouse gases. Um, this is one that, that he points out that, uh, he is quite concerned about. Um, the chart on the right shows our greenhouse or CO2 emissions. Um, if you look at that, that trend is, um, that we are polluting more and more, um, that, that that trend is, is uh, not, not going well. Um, he makes a statement, he says, even if we cut greenhouse gases to zero by 2075, we're still going to have a problem. And so he says that solutions are needed and the time is now. Um, solutions he, he talked about were carbon pricing, nuclear. He talked about fusion as a future technology that might, um, could save us. And um, then he also brought up a really good point about climate engineering, who gets to control the thermostat. So if you've seen the show, Daddy's Home, there's that funny scene where um, they're all bickering about the thermostat. Um, and as much drama as that's going to cause over a household, think of how much more that would cause over nations. Uh, who control the thermostat. Um, Laura, did you have a question? Yeah, I was just going to, not a question specifically, kind of just more, yeah, more of a comment. Um, I just think it's interesting depending on like kind of the angle that you're looking at it with. And if we're looking at it, like, you know, we are heading in the right direction um, we're progressing. 
I just like to think even just on a personal level, progression is not always a perfectly straight line, like perfect, or it doesn't come in a perfect um, modality, right? There's going to be road bumps or mistakes or setbacks along the way. So if we can look at it like, okay, we are really um, solving a lot of problems with this maybe new technology or new way of doing things, and that is progress. Okay, but it has this collateral damage that comes along with it, maybe to the environment or whatnot. And then it's like the next step is how do we remedy that part of it, right? And then it's just a continual process. And just hopefully, I guess the hope is, is that humanity can keep up um, remedying those things that come along with it and in a rapid enough place that we're not destroying the earth in the meantime, right? <laughs> but, yeah. but also like giving ourselves some grace that that is just what part of progress looks like, that it is an ongoing um, mistake-laden um process of getting to where we we eventually need to get to solve the problems that you know we're dealing with so that was just my thought yeah yep and 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 it goes way past even like like the cell phones like look at all that you know that might help with cutting down paper but um has all sorts of other implications other other things uh landon Yeah, I agree with I agree with Laura completely. And and when you say who gets to control the thermostat, uh, I do, uh, and I say that because uh, my my uh, career is uh, I work for Johnson Controls. We do control systems for uh, for all you know major buildings all over the world. And uh, I can tell you that this is what I do every day. Is we sit and we look at programming how we can make a building. Uh, I mean. The technology now we're looking at, you know, we look at how much carbon dioxide's in a room, how much we can, so we can keep the limited amount of how much outside air we have to reheat. And the amount of energy and stuff you can save with technology is just incredible. And I think this has been bypassed a lot in this discussion of how much technology really can uh, help you uh, help the environment. And, you know, we're, we're kind of scared of things uh, at times oh, it's going to go this way, but we discount what technology can do. Uh, I did think he he got a little, I thought he was a little optimistic in some of the things he said, um, uh, such as nuclear. I, I agree with him that nuclear is completely the cleanest way to go, and yet the world's going completely the opposite. Everyone, no one's building nuclear plants anymore. They're all shutting them down, uh, and that's that's kind of sad because we've got some wrong ideas there that, you know, we can't do it safely when we can uh, so uh, I think I think there's these fear-based things. Of course, we know we all know, and, and Laura just said it. Every solution causes another problem that then has to be solved, that then causes another problem. Uh, but that's the way of the world. But uh, it gets better over time. That's what these graphs keep showing. Over time, we're doing better. Uh, so we've got to let the technology go. We've got to let it progress. We've got to let there be some downside so that we can come to the upside. And that, that's just one of the things I've learned as I work every day in this industry is, uh, you know, it it gets better over, over time, but you you are going to make some mistakes along the way. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Um, all right. So peace. Uh, war has been our natural state. It's been romanticized. Um, you know, got a picture of Captain Moroni there. I mean, geez, it looks pretty cool, pretty tough. Um, and that's the way the world has been. Um, you go back long enough, uh, the data here um, on the top chart shows 
the percentage of years in which the great powers of the world fought each other. That's pretty much 100% back from 1500 to 1700, or at least 80. Um, very high. Just we spend a lot of time in war. That's um, that's that's the history that we have. Um, looks like it started declining quite a bit in 1800, had some ups and downs. It's a really low resolution chart, but you get down to the last, the most recent years, and it's quite a bit down. Um, you know, we'll have bumps, we'll have more bumps, but um, it looks a lot better than it used to be. Um, not only was it decreasing, I mean, it was decreasing in, in three three things. It was duration, frequency, and intensity. Um, so so just in all, in all of those areas, um, war is a lot less part of our lives now. Uh, after, you know, world, let's see. Oh, let's look at the bottom chart. Um, this shows a little bit more recently, 1945 till, till 2015. Um, this is a little bit more resolution. I think it's a bit more accurate. Um, this one shows battle deaths um, per 100,000 people per year. Um, you've got that huge bump in World War II. You see some bumps over some of the other wars. And then since about 1990, it's um, significantly down from where it had been previously. Um, and, and then this data in here is kind of showing where this big bump is. I, I mean, it kind of overlaps maybe the tail end of it. Um, so you can see that, that uh, you know, the data shows there's, there's fewer deaths um, from war. Um, if we remember Kant from a few, talking about morality, a few uh, book club uh, months ago, um, Kant wrote an essay, Perpetual Peace. Um, after World War II, um, ideas were systematically put into place um, to kind of help us keep out of war. Um, trading partners are less likely to go to war. So as we've increased global trade, that's been a good thing. Um, democratic government replacing glory, glory drunk leaders drive their countries into war has helped and then international laws and norms um, have, have helped that. Uh, Jackie, did you have a comment? Yes. Um, so I, I'm always thinking about um, after I read the book several years ago, the black swan that, you know, something can always come in and, and blow every trend to H E L L. And I'm thinking about Putin right now. And <clears throat> You know, is he just going to be a downturn in this tick? Because, you know, these, these numbers never go up perfectly. We get the downturns. Is Putin going to just be a downturn or is he going to, you know, create a, a World War II again? Um, because, you know, he's his own entity and and where they are geographically, uh, it's it's a scary thing. Yes. So yes. thoughts, anybody's Thank thoughts you. on that? Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to read that book. Oops, uh, just skipped too many. Okay. Um, talking about safety, um, crimes are trending down. Um, the chart on the upper left, we have homicide deaths. Um, England looks pretty flat. We've got data from the United States. It went up in the 70s, stayed there 90s, and then has started trending down. Um, data for the world has been trending down. Um, there's not a huge timeline on that. 
Um, but something that, that Landon said earlier, um, I think he, he brought up in this book, I, I think it was, it, it it's kind of cool. Why don't I see the crime? Um, it's kind of clustered and he says it's clustered within a few countries, within a few, and within those countries, a few cities, within those few cities, a few neighborhoods, and within those few neighborhoods, a few, a few blocks. Um, so we don't see a lot of crime. It, it kind of gets clustered and that kind of drives a lot of the data with things like, like um, you know, homicide. Um, homelessness, see, I, I don't see a lot of it, but we're, we're in, we don't, we have some of it in Logan. I think it's probably more, um, in Salt Lake kind of, it kind of clusters in certain areas. And, and so, you know, someone may not see it and someone may see a lot of it, um, depending on where they're at. Um, it does get clustered. Um, motor safety, uh, chart on the top right shows a pretty strong, uh, trend downward since cars were invented. Um, he also pointed out that, you know, cars actually prevent a lot of horse accidents. Um, he talked about pedestrian accidents going way down, um, you know, but, and this is, this is due to features and vehicles. Um, most of them, he, he's talking about Ford implementing um, all sorts of things that uh, were for safety. And it was a sales flop because they were, they had actually led the, um, the, regulations the regulations weren't there uh forcing them to do it but they were trying to make it safer for people um you know collapsible steering columns i think he says so that they don't turn turn us into uh kebabs when we we get in head-on collisions um features on a highway such as reflector poles um we've we've made those improvements and then with laws such as drunk driving laws uh we've made improvements there so motor safety has been trending down um something this chart it talks about deaths per hundred million vehicle miles. Um, we drive more, so I don't know. Um, if you did it in per person, it might be that chart might be a little bit more accurate, but we do, I guess per miles that that is trending down. Um, occupational safety is constantly improving. Um, we've automated dangerous jobs, adding guardrails, um, training, uh, value, valuing our workers more than the shingles, more than the, the, items that they're installing, um, that has all helped. Um, but this, you know, that's gone down significantly since 1910. Um, you know, this is, this is with our lifetimes, things have gotten a lot safer. Um, you know, my dad worked at a cement plant and the death toll was not zero there. Um, and, and accidents he had, they had a last accident since in no accidents in so many days. And if they hit a year, that was like a huge milestone. They got a huge bonus. So, um, you know, even, even now, uh, we, we still do have some of that. Um, but it's significantly better. Um, death or death by accident. Um, you can, he's got his chart on the bottom, right. Um, falls are down fire drowning. Everything is down with one exception, which is, um, poison death by poison, uh, gas or vapor. Uh, sorry. Gas or vapor is down, solid or liquid is up. And a big part of that is due to overdosing on drugs. So um, other accidents down, but that, that one is up. Um, chapter 13 is on terrorism. Um, he points out that we live in the safest time in history. Uh, in 2016, the majority of Americans named terrorism as the most important issue facing the U.S., which means that a fair amount of us were probably um, thinking that, and may, may still think that, um, 
But his claim is that terrorism is a distraction to progress. Um, if you look at the chart on the right, uh, the death tolls pale in comparison to other deaths. Um, compared to those other charts we've been looking at, um, death due to terrorism is per 100,000 people um, around 0 0.1, 0 0.2. So it's like one in a million, one in half a million. Um, you know, and this terrorism includes, uh, well, like you see the spike 2011, that was a, a big spike, um, but also includes uh, things like school shootings. Um, so terrorism creates an, an oversized outcry and, and fear. Um, it gets a lot of news media coverage. And, you know, part of this is that our fear from malevolent um, intent versus accident is quite a bit higher. Um, it's a lot harder to, it just, it doesn't feel good um, if, if someone dies from mal malevolent intent versus an accident. Um, both are bad, but the one feels a lot worse. Um, we also have zero tolerance of political violence. Uh, political violence causes fear of anarchy and that the social order is about to collapse. Um, so those are all founded, um, and those are all good reasons to be afraid of it. Um, but if you look at the numbers, it doesn't, it, we shouldn't be as afraid of that as we are other accidents, other, other, um, ways that we die. Um, you know, and, and, and part of that too, is that terrorists don't seek damage. They, they seek theater. Um, okay. Chapter 14 talked about democracy. Um, he states that tribal people fall into raiding and looting. Um, so we've, we've set up governments and these early governments, they pacified the people that they ruled, but they also imposed a reign of terror, including slavery, sacri human sacrifice, uh, torture of the disobedient. Um, and that even though they were tyrannical, uh, the alternative of chaos was worse. It was more deadly. And um, what democracy does is it attempts to avoid the tyranny and the chaos tries to find that middle ground where, where we can have um, the best society possible. So, um, you know, as, as, as we go forward and make progress, uh, democracy is viewed as a good thing. And he's got a couple of charts that kind of, um, kind of, kind of measure that. Um, the top one is death penalty abolitions. Um, the number of countries that have um, abolished capital punishment 19, in 1980, that went way up. Um, and then the one on the bottom is the number of executions in the U.S. Um, from, you know, almost the 1800s till 2016. Um, and that one has been coming down, even though we're not in those countries that have um, abolished the death penalty. Uh, one thing he talked about is, you know, there's a lot of countries, they might have Democratic Republic of something in its name. And he says those are the ones... Uh, that they're anything but a democracy. Um, those people won't even know what the word democracy means. They'll, they'll give you a different, different definition. Um, and so just because it says democracy does not mean that it is. Um, something that he talked about with, within a democracy is, you know, we, we, uh, we sometimes feel like our voting doesn't matter very much. Um, but he pointed out that the ability to complain is, is a big feature of a democracy, that complaining without... Um, you know, being thrown in jail for complaining against the government, that's what really kind of can set us off uh, or set us apart. Um, an example of this was women's, women's suffrage. They did not have the vote to write or to vote to vote. Sorry, the right to vote. <laughs> um, yet the amount, the, the ability to complain um, was able to bring that about.
Okay. Um, equal rights. Um, he kind of started off saying, you know, don't lose sight of how far we've come. Um, we're not, we're not there yet, but we have come a long ways. It was not that long ago that we had a very racist, sexist, and homophobic society. Um, and he says that's declining with time and with each generation, um, that the trend is improving. And, um, I hope, I hope we can see, I hope that's, uh, everybody's experience. Um, it does seem down, uh, the chart at the top, um, there's three, three different categories that he's showing since 1990 till today. So it's not a long, large time scale. Um, it's the percentage of people that agree with that statement that is there of, uh, you know, women should return to their traditional roles in society. Uh, school boards ought to have the right to fire teachers who are known homosexuals. And then I think it's all right for, I think it's all right for blacks and whites to date each other. Um, sorry, and those that disagree with that last one. Um, so we would hope that would go down. Um, the trend is going down. It looks, it looks slow to me, but um, I guess it's the right direction. Um, it, yeah, it feels high, but <laughs> anyway, that's his data. Um, so trends of hate crimes and rape are down. Women make up 47% of the labor force. Uh, things do look like they um, are improving. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, that gives you gives you faith that this will, will improve um, is that we're replacing dogma, well, replacing dogmas with reason uh, requires justification for the mistreatment of people and it crumbles under scrutiny. So when someone has a dumb idea, um, it's going to crumble under scrutiny. And so um, have faith that this will continue to improve. Um, the progress is global and people are starting to prioritize autonomy over authority. And we see this in newer, gener you know, as generations, you know, as these new generations start coming up, they, they're much more autonomous over authority. Um, they're becoming more liberal in every part of the world. And so um, equal rights should hopefully improve in the, in the long term. Uh, he also points out the childhoods are improving. There's a decline in child labor, corporal punishment, early and early death, and we have an improvement in play and education. Okay. Um, we're on to comments. Uh, Jackie, do you have a comment? Yes. Um, I think it's uncanny how those last two chapters, you can parallel it exactly with the church. Dogma, <laughs> you know, 40% of women are working. They're against, you know, they're against women working. Uh, you know, they don't want anybody to have a vote. Uh, it's complete hierarchy. I, I just I just think it's uncanny. And my husband and I were talking and I thought my husband really nailed it. He said the church is stuck in 1950 and they're digging in their heels and doing everything possible to stay there. And, you know, we just know what you said with the opposite of entropy, like everything moves forward. And people like us who see through all of this say, you know what, this church, it's not for me now or it's going to have to change and I just found it uncanny how the church shows up in the negative with everything this book puts out. Yes, that, that, that is, that is uncanny. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Bruce. Yeah, I just have, I guess, a quick plug. Uh, chapter 14 and 15. These are some of the themes that are going to come up in my presentation of the book, uh, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. Uh, 
the tribal people raiding and looting and stuff. That was one of the things that he, one of his changes that allowed him to conquer much of the world. So it's a very good book. It's not, you know, it, it's, it's history, but when I look at things, trying to figure out how the world works, our narrative of in America, in the US and with being Mormon gave a narrative of how the world works. Genghis Khan and looking what was going on in Asia gives us a, um, um, a different view. And so those topics are going to be come up, come up in our discussion in, in May. Oh, cool. That, that sounds very fascinating. Um, thank you, Landon. I just wanted to comment on what Jackie had to say, because uh, I, she, you know, she talked about the church paralleling these things. And the church doesn't want us to know these statistics. They don't want you to know that the world's getting better because the world's not getting better because of them. It's getting better in spite of them. Uh, you look, religion ran the religion was the main the, uh, uh, government, whatever you want to say. Religion is what drove most people's lives up until just the last couple centuries. And you see that the last couple centuries, as the world gets less religious, the increases are substantially going up as religion is going down. Is that coincidental or not? I, I, I don't think it is. I mean, uh, you look at the money the church has; they could eradicate a lot of these problems with that money they have. Yet they're not using it for any of that. They're not using it to solve the problems. Why? Because the problems is what they're there for. If if the problems go away, they don't need to be there anymore. So they, it's almost like it's contradictory for church and. Uh, and and humanism to coexist in the same in the same space it seems like as I as I read through this yeah yep and he hits on that uh, in that end part I, I do like that thank you uh, Rebecca yeah that's true Landon um on your, to to speak to your comment show me one advance um in the history of the world that hasn't been fought tooth and nail by religion <laughs> or the person that came up with the advance um put to death it happens a lot um but my comment i was thinking about what you said kevin about in a democracy people can you know voice their opinion they can make change they can fight for things and that's what has led to a lot of these advances and i think that's why as a lot of us are post mormons or nuanced mormons um within the church there's not a lot of it's not a democracy it's a theocracy there's not a lot of avenue for anybody to really say anything or make a change um mormons who are post mormons but still concerned about mormonism um on the outside are the ones that can raise those voices they can um, point out things, they can evoke the change, I feel. So it's important. It's an important part of being a Mormon. You're still a Mormon, even though you're a post-Mormon. And when you shine a spotlight on these things, changes happen. There are lots of examples that we could point to where nobody inside could say anything, but enough outcry on the outside and some of these changes um, within the religion are made. So that was just my observation. Yeah, it's so true. Too bad it can't happen from within, but but yeah, I thought that was really fascinating when you talked about the democracy and how that's, you know, being able to complain is, is what makes it great. Um, too bad they can't from the inside. <laughs> uh, Joe. Yeah, I was, as I was reading through the book, I was surprised. So about five or seven years ago, it seems like there was a BYU talk that we were listening to. And this guy came out and he said, and I can't remember the name or anything, and I wish I could find it because my search abilities are terrible. Anyway, he was talking about how we are living in the greatest time. We are doing okay, which was really kind of weird because it 
I'd never heard that from church sources. And it reinforced in me the, like, yeah, I've always felt this. I felt like all the rhetoric around the end times and everything was kind of not, you know, it just never sat well with me. And then to have this guy come out and say, yeah, we're living great. And then to have this book come out and show data, like, yeah, this is, we're doing great. I was talking to some guy on Twitter the other day about how Holland was talking about all the terrible things and the world's coming to an end. And I'm like, yeah, but does he have any data? Because this book has plenty of data that shows that's not true, you know? And and again, my big thing with religion or God is, why didn't God teach anyone to wash their hands? Why didn't Jesus just teach them to use water, you know, correctly? And anyway, so it, it's been a really impressive book. It's got a lot of stats and figures in it, and, and I, I'm enjoying this discussion. But yeah, it's just weird that one talk out of the blue at BYU was like, Oh, yeah, you know, and I've never heard from him again, so maybe he got fired. I don't know, but yeah, thank you, uh, Ron. Yeah, one thing I've noticed after as I've left the church is that the church controls its members through fear a great amount. So the whole second coming, in anything anything imminent is about to happen, so we have to all gather up and build Zion and travel to Utah, we were all sacrificing our lives trying to get to Utah. It was all over fear of the second coming anytime. Uh, and so this fear-based outlook of the world is ingrained into the religion. And leaving the religion, I can see that that fear is just really unhealthy. But some of the beliefs are, are just downright dangerous because they believe that God is in control of the world. And if the world gets really screwed up, say global warming happens and people are dying everywhere and other catastrophe. That just means that Jesus's return is so much closer. So this is all part of God's plan and he's going to take care of us. So we don't have to worry about the environment or these other things because if, if things go to hell, then that's just because it's part of God's plan. And so one thing I realized when I left the church is like, crowd we're we're in charge of taking care of this planet and making sure it's safe for our next generation we need to take care of it and do what we can to make sure that it carries on because there's nobody out there looking after the world it's us yep big responsibility thank you uh bruce yeah going back to my comment on the word of wisdom and you know washing hands but you know wine beer tea and coffee tea and coffee required you to boil the water wine and beer fermented and created alcohol i think all of those were ways that mankind developed having safer drinking water and then there's the i think it's it's an old wives tale that you know oh in jesus's time it was grape juice and not alcohol but my understanding is if you create cre you know squeeze the juice out of grapes it will naturally start to ferment like if you have flour and you let it sit it starts turning into sourdough because of the yeast in the air and stuff so mormons tried to have the oh you can't drink alcohol jesus made grape juice well i think grape juice is only possible after uh pasteurization came around because any great um, juice of the grape would ferment into wine. I, it's just an interesting thing how, how our culture has told us so many things. The world 
is better and was better because people boiled tea to make or boiled water to make tea, boiled water to make coffee. And those were just kind of how mankind developed safer drinking water. So kind of an interesting thing when you compare it to the word of wisdom. Yeah. Although Jesus just said it and it turned to wine. It went from water to wine. No fermentation necessary. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, all right. So this is our last section on part two. Um, I might hit some of these uh, chapters fairly quickly um, just due to time. Because um, I do want to hit that last section. Um, if anyone has comments, though, on them, um, you know, if there's something in here that you, that you found really interesting, I skip over it. Uh, you make that uh, comment. Um, knowledge, we're becoming more literate. Um, this chart shows that in 1500s, no one was literate. And now, well, actually, the world in 1825 was 10% literate. That's bizarre. And within 175 years, year 2000, we're now 80 plus percent literate. So, um, big progress um, worldwide and, and across all countries. And I don't see that trend going anywhere. Um, oops, sorry, without a major um, problem. Um, IQs have even been rising. Um, he says three points per decade. Um, and it, and it's in abstract thinking. It's it's uh, not necessarily what they're teaching in school, but they're, we are learning how to think. Um, he, he talks about how important education is, how when governments invest in education, we get um, better people. Um, it can dispel bad beliefs, such as leaders rule with the divine right, and that people that don't look like you are less than human. It also helps us recognize that other cultures are valid like our own. Charismatic saviors have led their countries to disaster. Our convictions, no matter how strong, can be wrong. Um, it teaches us that there's better or worse ways to live, and that other cultures may know things that we don't and that there's ways to resolve issues without violence. Um, quality of life. Uh, this, this one's very fascinating. I, 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 um, work hours are de decreasing. Retirement is earlier and vacation time is up. So top two charts show that we moved in, you know, before the 1900, well, about around 1900, we were 60 hours of work per week. Um, that's now decreased to a little bit more than 40. Um, it gives us a better quality of life working fewer hours. Retirement has gone from 75-ish. Um, sorry. The percentage of men 65 and older working in the workforce has gone from 75% down to 20%. So the amount of people that are past our, our, our today's retirement age has gone down. Um, he, he mentions that, um, you know, we have more, we have more spare time. Um, it might think that with two career couples, overscheduled kids and our digital devices, um, that we're, we don't get family dinner anymore, but, um, the data says that we have more leisure than we had before. Um, one of these, uh, charts, the chart in the bottom left-hand corner was really fascinating. Um, it shows the hours a week spent on housework. So we start out in night around 1900, um, at 60 hours a week for housework that has a steady decline. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's declining, um, you know, around 1975 and then it kind of tapered off a little bit, but uh, still is declining um, till today. And it shows all of the inventions that came about that, uh, you know, you get the invention and then all of a sudden your housework starts going down. So running water was a big one, um, electricity, 
um, all the way to vacuum cleaners, microwaves, stoves, uh, washing machines. That has all helped us have more spare time. Um, spending on necessities, it's been a pretty steady decline in the percentage of our income that is dedicated to necessities. Um, and that's on average. Uh, Landon pointed out a very good point earlier about, I don't know what someone fresh out of college does about housing. Uh, it's ridiculous. I don't know. Um, but on average, numbers are getting better. Um, oh, something else is just think about the connection we have to others. Um, you know, things are tending toward costing nothing. Um, I think we can all remember a long distance call. I, I remember, oh no, this is a long distance call. Hurry up and talk and get off. Um, those used to cost. And now if you have a phone, you can make a call to um, your mom across the country just as easily as you can next door. Um, we have video calls, which are cool. You couldn't get that years ago. And our travel costs are down. Um, Landon mentioned how uncomfortable the, the plane was, but the alternative would have been boat. Um, and, and the reality is we have experiences available to us that were, I mean, they far surpass, surpass the abilities of the wealthiest people who have passed. So um, it's a, we have a great quality of life, better now than ever before. Um, happiness. Are we happier? We sure ought to be. Um, but we always hear about happiness is declining. Um, th this was a fascinating chapter. There's, there's a lot of information here. Um, but Pinker, Pinker's claim is that it's not, it seems to be, um, that, that there's more of an absolute, there's more of a correlation to wealth um, than what I would have guessed. Um, you know, it's hard to measure. If you ask someone, it can change based on mood. Um, there, there's a lot of things that are going to change that. Um, but life, health, freedom, those are all prerequisites that can be measured. Um, and happy and meaningful lives go together. Um, this, this chart on the bottom left, it, it, it's, it's kind of hard to di digest, but it's, um, for number one, it's, it's in a log scale, which shows uh, percentages rather than like absolute increases. Um, but what the point is that you've got this line here um, going down the, the middle of them. That's kind of the average. Um, and wealthier countries tend to um, have more life satisfaction. So we've got income here on the on the horizontal axis and life satisfaction on the vertical axis. Um, those are correlated. He did mention that the USA is actually lower than, than other countries. Um, I think his hypothesis was religion. Um, uh, he, he does make a claim later that religion actually correlates with less happiness. Um, suicide is, it can seem like a, a, a good measure of happiness, um, although that is questionable. Um, it is the number 10 leading cause of death in the US and it does increase during economic tough times. Um, something like, something that I found fascinating about this chart is, is this has been something that, that um, you know, I, I've been concerned about because everyone is starting these charts around 2000. When I've you know, done my research on, are we getting happier? And you know, I, I've been using this, this um, as, as, a, as a metric. They always start the chart at 2000. If you'll notice that's, that's at a bottom. Um, and so of course, if you start your data in 2000, it is going to look like we are getting less happy based on that statistic. But, um, what you can see is since 1900, um, we're not, it's not increasing on, in the long term. Um, and so, you know, as we look at numbers, sometimes it does depend on how the data is presented to us. Um, 
Yeah, let's go to the next slide. Um, chapter 19 is on ex existential threats. Um, and and, and he, he poses the question, what's the harm in existential threats? Um, well, there, there is harm there. Um, they can they can convince us not to take care of what's important. Um, I think it was Joe that mentioned that earlier. Um, I think might not have been Joe. Um, anyway, just just the point that we have a planet to take care of. Um, it was Ron that mentioned that. Um, we need to take care of that. If we think the world's going to end in ten years, we don't have that problem. Um, I certainly have felt that. Um, a lot of existential threats can be self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, an example of that is the nuclear arms race that uh, wasn't so long ago. Um, and globally, 15% of people think they're going to see the end of the world. Um, and, and at the end of the day, extinction is our destiny. Um, we live on a planet that someday that sun will go out. So what are we going to do? Well, may maybe technology can save us. Uh, we don't know. Um, can we destroy asteroids? We're trying. Um, I think we have some technologies that can possibly lead to cooling volcanoes. Some of these natural disasters, we have um, an ability to maybe someday um, thwart some of those threats. Talks about artificial intelligence, which I personally am very afraid of. Um, so he kind of put me a little bit to ease there um, with that. Um, but we do project our motivations as humans onto intelligence. Um, there's also the problem of automation. Are they going to take my job? And uh, just so you know, the Luddites, if you haven't heard about them, uh, they destroyed textile machinery because they said, oh, no, this loom is going, all our jobs are going. So, um, I mean, you can be worried about it, but I don't know. We seem, we seem so far to be pretty resilient, pretty uh, able to adapt to um, what we need to adapt to. Um, the thing about the AI that put me to ease is the more complex a system, the more people are required to weaponize it. Um, he said, there are so many low hanging acts of terror. It would be so much easier for, for people to implement than, than some of these things that we're dreaming up. Um, it really wouldn't be that hard and it's our humanity that is actually saving us. And so um, worrying about complex problems is sometimes uh, not the, the best use of your time. Um, he does point out nuclear weapons are a real ex existential threat. But keep in mind that that threat has been declining. Um, okay, and then uh, the future of progress. He just kind of recaps: life is never been safer, safer, healthier, wealthier, freer, etc. Um, there are still poor. There are people that are depressed. There are hate crimes. Um, but hopefully, we can continue to progress. Um, there will be ups and downs. Um, he also said, mentioned that technologies take decades before people learn how to yield their power. So you take electricity or computers, computers in the eighties weren't that productive, but we soon learned how to use them. And now they are very productive and have led to much, um, nicer jobs for most of us. Um, he also talks about populism as a counter enlightenment movement. He mentioned Brexit and Trump, um, as being, um, populist movements. Um, and that those, those, you know, stuff like that will come up. Um, but we, he, he expects that, uh, we will continue to progress. Okay, any questions on that section? That looks like a no. All right, we're gonna move on for the sake of time. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was trying to get there. Uh, I just okay. had a comment on chapter 18. Um, uh, the, the amazing thing to me was, as I looked at all, you know, we just had 20 chapters of why the world is such a better place. And 
yet chapter 18 from the chart, we're not any happier. Uh, I just was wondering if anyone <laughs> had any clues as to why we're not getting happier. Is it that we're, we don't know this information? Are we not seeing it? Because uh, it it definitely, you look at it and it should make us happy, but but the, the, that's the one data that didn't, didn't seem to correlate with what uh, we were seeing in the rest of the book. Yeah, and I think, oh, sorry, sorry, did you have more? I had a comment on your comment. <laughs> um, th th thanks, Landon. Um, yeah, and, and I think a good book, was it, ha what's that? Oh, The Happiness Hypothesis, uh, Jonathan Haidt, right? That's a pretty good one, um, if you haven't read that. Uh, Bruce? Uh, yeah, I just had a comment on Landon's comment. Yeah, I think we have a hard time having accurate perspective. Um, I read someplace that a current modern life now would be compared, you know, to several hundred years ago as having the equivalent of 400 servants. I mean, I have this heating system that is going in the background. I have central heating. I have electricity. I have clean water. I have a hot shower. I have you know, safe everything. And it would have required 400 servants to give somebody several hundred years ago the luxuries that I have. But then on a really personal basis, since separating from the Mormon church and getting an understanding, a better understanding of how the world works and my place in it, I am infinitely happier than I was all the time I was growing up. Infinitely happier. So that's just my comment. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Mylene. One of the things that we know about happiness is that as you get to the point where you get more comforts and more time to yourself, you also have more time to ruminate and compare yourself to other people. And so self-reporting happiness is very um, unreliable in terms of, like Bruce said, compare yourself to what it would have been you know, several hundred years ago. Yes, exactly. I that is a very good point. Thank you. Um, Jackie. Uh, I think we have a real intersection with this chapter on happiness with just mental health. And as we all know, mental health has to be done individually. <clears throat> and, you know, shadow work, it's all individual. And so to data mine, it is pretty tough. And we know that mental health you know, it's like, it's like you said, with the computers in the eighties, it wasn't that great. Everybody's kind of trying to figure it out. We're just now honing in on effective mental health. And then we're still dealing with all the addiction. So I think it's really, really hard to get clear data because the intersections are just very different. But I think there's no question that we have the Eeyores in the world and we have the glass empty and the glass full. And, um, we also know that we're responsible for our own happiness. So I think it's just too complex to really see clear data, but I think all of us can see what make, if, if we're critical thinkers, we will figure out how to make us as healthy and happy as we can be if we ground into critical thinking and tools that really work. Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, thanks everyone for those comments. Um, okay, this is the last section. 
I'm going to try to hurry. <laughs> this is the part I wanted the most time to talk on then. Uh, it, it was really a chapter, but we'll, we'll try. Um, okay, so this is kind of finishing up his book. Um, talks about, um, I can't see my title, Reason. Oh, shoot. Science and human humanism. Um, okay, so this, this one's on reason. Um, he talks a lot about um, just how we as humans reason. Um, you know, we evolved before science, but we are a species that has relied on reasoning of ideas. Um, he does point out that our political and religious ideologies affect our beliefs on issues more than reason do. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I know I've been a... a I've told blue lies before it's for the benefit of the end group. It's, it's when someone asks you, you know, as a missionary, how, you know, Oh, I'm so happy to be a member of the church type stuff. Um, you know, that, that, that is probably true, but you do, you, you would never say, no, I hate, I hate it. <laughs> um, you always give it the benefit of the doubt. So that's what a blue lie is. Um, uh, our motivated reasoning leads us to a favorite conclusion rather than following uh, to where it leads. Uh, once we hear a, a, a stat that, shows our side sometimes we just we're done listening to stats and that's what we're going to go with um and if you've ever been to a sports game um it's so fun to cry foul when when you know yell at the refs when uh, you don't think it's a foul but it, it's always just one way it just seems to never um no one yells when the foul the penalty is on their on the other team um they did a, a study um on both sides of a gun study they just show that um the way that you interpret the data, just it just depends on your politics. Um, for a lot of people, that's that's how they they did that. Um, he also pointed out that expertise doesn't mean you'll come to the truth. Um, they had a forecasting tournament where they got experts in a field. They they made they had this forecasting tournament from 2011 to 2015, and they found that the worst people at forecasting were the ones with big ideas, left wing or right wing. Um, the closer that to the area of expertise, the worse they did. Um, the best people at forecasting were those that uh, drew from diverse resources. They used probabilities and not certainties. And they admitted to being wrong and looked for holes in their reasoning. So um, we can take a lesson from that type of people and, and try to uh, be able to be better at reasoning. Um, when, let's see. And then just last thing, he, he kind of points out how how do we... How do we foster an intellectual and political culture that is driven by reason rather than tribalism? Um, and then the two things that he pointed out were education and not politicizing issues. Um, those are things that can help us um, reason better. Um, chapter 22 is science. Uh, science should be named the proudest accomplishment of humans. It's a, you know for eradicating diseases. We, we're understanding the cosmos. We're sequencing the DNA of Neanderthals. Very cool stuff. We should be very proud of that as a human race. Um, very cool stuff. Uh, first principle of science is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest one to fool. We're usually wrong, but good science helps us understand that. Um, and and, and that, that's, that's a humbling thought. When you go into an experiment, you're probably wrong. Um, can you be a scientist enough to, to um, go where the data leads, not where you want it to lead you? Um, he points out the two ideals of science being that the world is intelligible. Uh, it's the why, not the, and it's not because I said so. Um, so we can understand this world. Um, science is not, you know, it's not just breaking problems down into simpler problems. It's, it's trying to understand what is at the root of it. Um, and we must allow the world to tell us if our ideas are correct or not. 
Um, we should rely on Bayesian thinking, not dogmas, faith, convention, or conventional wisdom. Um, he had a lot of, he, he mentioned there's a lot of scorn for science by right and left wing uh, ideologies. Uh, you know, they're, fu you know, funding research on climate change, change and stoking fears about nuclear power. Um, those are two examples that, that he uh, pointed out. Um, you know, scientific discoveries about nature and man are undermining our traditional religions and moral teachings and understandings as creatures with freedom. Um, a threat to our humanity is not in the transmigration of souls in the next life, but the denial of soul in this one. Um, so it's kind of a right-wing um, scorn for science. Um, and then uh, science forces to take our welfare into our own hands and not God's. Um, he points out that liberal arts in many universities are poisoning students against science. He mentioned the second most popular book in university is Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And then it teaches that scientific theories come and go when new theories disavow the old one. Um, there was a lot there in, 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 in that um, chapter. If, if you only read a few chapters of, the, of this book, 21, 22, and 23 are the ones, ones to read. Okay, the last chapter, um, and this one I took, I took two slides on this one, I couldn't get it all in one. Um, this is on humanism. Uh, we've talked about science and reasoning and how those go hand in hand, but science is not enough to bring about progress. Um, that's not going to do it. It brings vaccines, it brings bioweapons. It can help us record events that are gonna be memorable. It also allows us to be monitored by Big Brother. Um, and the list, list goes on. Um, but human, you know, humanism, though, um, kind of is, 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 a, is a way to, to help us with that. It, it has the goal of maximizing human flourishing. Uh, this is done through love, life, health, happiness, freedom, knowledge, richness of experience. Um, I think everyone in the world can agree that those are good things, that that's what we um, should strive for. Um, and, and what humanism does is provides the ought from the is. It provides good without God and resolving conflicts cooperatively without violence. Um, you know, even this conversation that we're having here today is just, it, like he points out, it's, it's, it's they're staggering odds that we've arranged ourselves into a thinking organ, being products of a natural selection, the only physical process capable of producing complex adaptive design and must have defied entropy long enough to show up for discussion and persist through it. So this conversation is just proof of, of amazing, just, it should be awe-inspiring. Um, you know, this means that we've taken energy from our environment. We've stayed within a narrow envelope consistent with its integrity and defended off assaults from living and non-living dangers. Um, so we talked about a few months ago about utilitarianism. Um, he mentions that human, human, humanistic mortality, morality has a utilitarian flavor. You know, we, we acts are evaluated with their consequences um, you know, and, and he also points out that although humanism is moral code for rational people across multiple cultures to converge upon, it clashes with theism and romantic heroism. Um, all right, good without God. There we are. We're going to hell in a handbasket. That's what that picture is. Um, not having internal punishment leads to stealing, lying, and murder. Um, that's, you know, I probably would have agreed with that five years ago. Um, he points out there's really no good reason. So Pinker says there's no good reason to believe in God. Scriptures are products of human thinking filled with error. Um, this universe relies on precise constants that would make our world uninhabitable were it not for God. Um, that's one of the arguments against um, 
I guess what he's going, he, 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 he's trying to give arguments against humanism here. Um, and his answer for that is, uh, what is the divine purpose of volcanoes, floods, and famine? Um, you know, if those precise constants were set by God, why would he set those things? Why would he make that part of um, this world? Uh, the fact that we exist implies the universe is, is such that it supports life. Um, if, you know, someone has to win the lot, the lottery. Um, and so the fact that we have these constants that are so precise for life, well, there's billions of worlds, um, at least, um, one of us is going to win the lottery and one of them is going to support life. And the fact that we're here says that it does. Um, he also points out that the God of the old Testament commanded mass rape and genocide, but it frowned upon working on the Sabbath, homosexuality, adultery, and blasphemy. Um, you know, and so so he's saying that that you must read you must read the Bible through the lens of humanism if you're going to um, pull out the good that is in there that you can't just take it all in. Um, now, with that being said, he did say that religion should not be praised nor condemned across the board. Um, his solution for going forward would be to leave behind the supernatural dogma and keep the arts, rituals, and community. Um, points out that religion's answers to deep questions are shallow. And also that an alternative to religion is not science. Um, spirituality should be gratitude for existence, offer the grandeur of the universe, and humility for our understanding. Um, which I think I, I think I can agree with all those. Um, the largest growing religion at all is, or sorry, the largest growing religion is no religion at all. So he did point uh, that out. Um, you know, as being the lack of the reason that people are moving away from religion is uh, a lack of belief in the teachings. Um, he also pointed out that wealthy nations are least religious, again, with the USA being the exception. So um, a lot there in those last chapters, again, those are the only ones you read. It, 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 those are the ones to read. Um, I really like that last part. Uh, do we have comments on that? We're almost out of time, but um, yeah, comments on the last section. All right, Bruce. Yeah, I just thought this last, last section gives me kind of some comfort in a way that I've moved towards this in my understanding of the world and that I'm not just the only one who has had some of these thoughts and his reinforcing this whole narrative from the book, I find comforting. Thank you. Jackie. Yes, I was just, I'm with you. I just thought, especially the chapters on reason and science were fabulous. I, I just, I just thought he constructed them so well and I'd recommend them to anybody. And I loved um, how he just finished with religion, just being gratitude and awe. Uh, I think when we keep things very big, you know, just a few concepts big, uh, we can make like quote spirituality work um and when we start trying to define and micro everything it, it 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 just falls apart the arguments but i was just so appreciative of this book and um i just want to throw out um so in 2008 right after that a book called the black swan was written and it was about the crash in 2008 and and the economy and how no one saw it coming and that's a black swan and you can forecast for all your worth, but nobody sees the black swan, meaning that every so often a, a black swan is born in a white swan 
you know, in, in that, that form of animals. And so I think that's the problem with AI. Like you can think of every scenario known to man with a self-driving car, but will you re- come up with the black swan? And so I just kind of read this book so hopeful and, and, and I really believe it. I'm 90% with it, but I've always got this black swan in my back mind of what could come up that could crash it all. And so that's kind of what I wanted to throw out to everybody. You know, how are your feelings on it? And um, I'm such a skeptic now and I not, I was not a natural critical thinker. So I don't have the skills. So I just kind of wanted to know what people thought. And Kevin, you did a fantastic job. It's, and it's such a great book. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, Rebecca. Yeah, I really appreciated the last couple of chapters because I take, (laughs) whenever I find one of those quizzes that says, what are you, you know, are you religious? Are you an atheist? You know, you answer all the questions and I always come up um, with secular humanist and which I thought, okay, that sounds good. I'm not exactly sure what it is. So the book kind of point kind of went through step-by-step. What is that? And I was reading going exactly, that's exactly it. That's it. So it helped me now have something to say when my friends and relatives say, well, what are you now? You know, In not a very nice way. I'm like, well, I am a proud secular humanist and this is what it means. And uh, the other of your comments from this section that I thought were important is when you talked about getting information, taking in information from all different sources so you can make decisions and not being in that vacuum. And that's part of being a humanist. And I thought about um, a couple of years ago, they leaked some video of how the top leaders of the church get their information. Um, in a way, this sort of, to me, absolves them of some of the things they're doing. They basically have other people um, go through news sources, things like that, synthesize the information, bring to them a presentation on what is important for the top leaders to know. That's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the information is synthesized through, you know, it was a straight white guy, you know, who walked in and and told them what was going on news of the day. So, you know, they've isolated and insulated themselves to the point where they couldn't possibly forecast anything for their membership who's looking to them to tell them directions to go and what to do. <clears throat> so I think recognizing that we can be very careful ourselves to, you know, go to diverse sources, have groups like this where we discuss things and and try to arrive at things that are good for ourselves, for others. I just think it's, it's so important. So yeah, I absolutely love the end of the book. And if you did not have a chance, like Kevin said, to read the whole thing, at least go through those chapters. Those to me were sort of life-changing. I absolutely love them. Yes. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was, that was a, it was a tough book to get through when you had to make notes and stuff. Um, <laughs> but, um, hopefully, hopefully I tried to just throw out all the information there. Hopefully, hopefully that worked out. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, and then Jackie's comment, Black Swan. See, I, I'm I'm there with you, Jackie. I I have a concern about that stuff too. <laughs> and, and and I think Pinker kind of mentioned the book. I, I probably didn't say anything about it, but you know, it's like this is the data. This is where it's going. But that doesn't mean that. I mean, an asteroid could come tomorrow. We may not even know that it's even there, right? Or, you know, um, there's a, a number of things that could happen. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm there with you, Jackie, on the black swan. <laughs> so. I got I gotta keep it there. I want it low. You know, I, like I said, I'm 90% positive, but I've got that 10% black swan, like, uh, yeah. 
So, all right. Um, yeah, thank you. That was thank great. You. Thank you so much. Everybody clap for Kevin. That was yeah. absolutely, oh, sure. and what a tough clap, book. Clap. But, oh my gosh. No. And there are not a lot of summaries of this book out there or anything like this. Cause I Googled, try to, you know, trying to see, because I think it's really hard to take on. So if we put this out there, this may become the number one you know, two-hour version of Steven Pinker's book. I'm not <laughs> kidding. There really isn't a lot out there because there's just so much. No, this is absolutely incredible. Let's um, quickly go to our final slides, and then we'll move on to where we just kind of get together and talk about everything we've learned today. So again, oh, thank you. Kevin, that was absolutely amazing. Um, I think we do have some final slides. If we can, I can't say a word without my slides. I can't remember where we are. So <laughs> there we go. Thank you, Kevin. There's our final slide on Steven Pinker. That was absolutely amazing. Um, let's see, moving to the next one. We are now going to have a preview of our book coming up for April, and our discussion leader is Sean. So let's hear from Sean for a few minutes to tell us about this wonderful book we're going to be reading next. Hey, everybody. Uh, yeah, so here we are. It's already almost April, and uh, I thought it would be a great idea to take on this book. I knew it would be a challenge for me, um, <clears throat> and it certainly has turned out to be that. Um, so next month, we're going to have kind of a personal journey, um, and uh, we'll get ready to follow one active but skeptical Mormon's journey from nuance to critical thinking as we examine and discuss the reliability of various sources and objective look, the science behind our beliefs and biases, uh, behavior manipulation, pattern formation, and thought reform, emotional and psychological damage that can and does result. Um, it's kind of heavy stuff here, but then, uh, then uh, we'll top it off with how we may recover and I would just like to add that this has been a very emotional book for me. Um, uh, it's, I approached it with a healthy dose of skepticism uh, and uh, was overwhelmed by the abundance of evidence that, uh, that Luna Lindsay Corbin presents in, in this book, which was really a remarkable book. Um, if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend uh, uh, doing it. Uh, and Rebecca, you have just uh, increased my stress level from a six to about a 10 by announcing that she might act or that they, Luna, Luna goes by they, that Luna may actually be joining us for, for this uh, discussion. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. These things come up. But Sean, you and I will talk as the month goes on what she might want to do as far as being involved. So, and if she does okay. come in, it would just be briefly and you'd be able to do your presentation. But yeah, anything can happen in book club. I think that's what we learned. Anything can happen. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually really excited to hear that, that that's a possibility. I've been thinking about reaching out to them uh, because I have a Kindle version of this book, and for some reason it doesn't show all the images. So I was going to see if there's some way to get a hold of, of images, and I just wanted to let Luna know that I was going to be doing this. Um, but uh, so I'll, I'll we'll chat afterwards. I'll maybe get uh, their contact information from you if that's a possibility. But the the amazing thing about this book is it's kind of personally it's it's see I'm very I'm still very very closeted. But I'm finding that this book is is 
kind of forcing me out of the closet a little bit, which is maybe a good thing. So it'll be an interesting discussion. I'm really looking forward to, to uh, uh, discussing with all you fine folks next month. Great. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Sean. And I think you actually are the perfect person to do this book. And it sounds like it has really been a journey for you. And so we were really looking forward to hearing from you and, and what you're comfortable sharing with us. And we're, we're just really excited that you grab this book right away when we put all the books up for grab at the beginning. So wonderful. So right. I guess we'll just end. Um, if you are not a member of the book club, but just zoomed in with this because I put the dang link everywhere. <laughs> you can connect with us. You can find us. Uh, first, you can send me just an email, old school at the good book club at mail.com. And I'll write you back and tell you how to connect more. Um, you can find us on Facebook. That's our logo there with all the books. You can connect. We do a lot on Facebook just through the month, um, chatting about the books together and posting interesting tidbits and just other things we come across. So that's fun. Um, you can also find us on Instagram where we also put information and we're sort of on TikTok working on that. <laughs> but anyway, we'd love it if you join us because we just have an amazing, wonderful group of people. Um, if you do shoot me an email, I always have this slide up because it always goes to spam. I don't know why, but uh, mark it so we're not spam, but we're safe. So, and that ends our official part of the book club. Now, for those of you that are new or haven't been here before, we just love to talk and we're always determined to have our own three hour block. So please uh, stay on with us and we'll just very informally chat. Everybody can unmute their mic and that's it. <laughs>